the scriptures in the Old Testament, we turn to the prophecy of Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 3, which we'll read in its entirety. You find that on page 1009 in your Pew Bible. We consider this passage of God's Word this afternoon in connection with the sermon that is concerned with our righteousness before God, being justified by faith alone before God our judge. So after we've read from Zechariah 3, we'll sing in response Psalm 130, stanzas 3 and 4. Here the word of the Lord speaks to us as follows. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem to re rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. And so they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Through the word of the Lord, as the church has summarized and confessed it in Lord's Day 23 of the Heidelberg Catechism, you find that on page 537 of your Book of Praise. <clears throat> Lord's Day 23, where the church confesses as follows, but what does it help you now that you believe all this? In Christ, I am righteous before God and heir to life everlasting. How are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Although my conscience accuses me, that I have grievously sinned against <clears throat> all God's commandments, have never kept any of them, and am still inclined to all evil, 
Yet God, without any merit of my own, out of mere grace, imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. He grants these to me as if I had never had nor committed any sin, and as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me, if only I accept this gift with a believing heart. <clears throat> Why do you say that you are righteous only by faith? <clears throat> Not that I am acceptable to God on account of the worthiness of my faith, <clears throat> for only the right satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ is my righteousness before God. I can receive this righteousness and make it my own by faith only. <clears throat> After we've heard from God's holy word, we'll sing together in response hymn 79. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, what does it help you to know that Vice President Mike Pence used a private email account that was hacked while he was serving as governor of, Judea, of Indiana? What does it benefit you, brothers and sisters, to know that two BC men have been found guilty of harassing a moose trying to swim across a lake in BC. With the advent of the telegram, and now especially TV and the internet, our world has turned into a global village where all kinds of news is available at the click of a button or the tap of a screen. But this news doesn't necessarily help us from a day-to-day -day perspective, even if we can be so well informed about the goings-on in this world. We have to admit that most of it is merely factual information, not functional information. It has no real impact on our lives. It doesn't really benefit us a whole lot, if at all. Well, our catechism this afternoon is asking not about the benefit of knowing mere information, but the benefit of believing the revelation of God. But what does it help you now that you believe all this? That's a serious question, calling us to reflection. You cannot only have possess the gift of faith, it's got to mean something to you as well. It has to be your strength, your treasure from which you derive all sorts of delight in Christ. We've just spent 15 Lord's Days going through the various articles of our Christian faith in the Apostles' Creed. So now the Catechism is saying, is asking, what does all this knowledge you have of the triune God, what does your faith in the triune God profit you? Yeah, that is a serious question. It confronts us, younger, older, for the catechism students, what good does it do to you to believe what, you've be, what you're being taught? 
for those who have professed their faith, what good is it to you today now that you believe all this? Well, the benefit that we hope to unpack this afternoon is in Christ. I am righteous before God. Whoever believes his confession is united to Christ. And when we are in Christ, that means we are righteous before God. The righteous status is God's gracious gift to us. But it's a gift we receive by faith. This is the profit, the benefit of believing in the triune God, of having faith in him. With those empty hands of faith, we receive the righteousness that is ours in Christ. And we have to make it our own. So yes, our faith, the gift of God, is not merely factual. It has a fundamental role to play in our relationship with the Lord. In Christ, I am righteous before God by faith. That's God's word this afternoon for you. God declares that I am righteous before him. And that's a gift that's mine, we'll see, in spite of all accusations. Secondly, on account of Christ's righteousness. And then thirdly, by faith only. So first we see that that gift is mine in spite of all accusations. It is a rather loaded expression in answer 59 that in Christ I am righteous before God. It's the central aspect of this Lord's Day, justification through faith. And so it's important that we properly understand what it means to be righteous before God. Here we are getting at one of the core issues of our life with the Lord, not on getting a degree or a career or a spouse. No, in this life we can depend upon something a whole lot deeper, upon a declaration God has made. It's the declaration that gives us peace both now, today, and when we die. And so we again are getting at our only comfort in life and in death. And the Catechism fleshes this out for us now from the perspective of our righteous status before God by faith. We belong to Christ because of what our holy and heavenly God has judged, declared, concerning us. Yes, this places us then in a courtroom case on trial before God. And so we get to see what God thinks of us. So when we think of our position before God, we think of legal accountability before God. We can never run from His sight. Psalm 139, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. God alone knows the innermost thoughts of the man. Before the holiness of God, any illusions we might have of ourselves are stripped away. We are left undone, like Isaiah said. Here we are not concerned so much with what others think of us, 
or what we even ourselves think of us. Before people, we might be free of guilt and blame. We may even have a very good reputation for that matter. But we're not appearing before people. We're not appearing in the Supreme Court of Canada. We appear now before the highest bar in the court of the supreme judge of heaven and earth. Beloved, these scriptures use this terminology, this imagery, when, quite often when speaking of our status before God. We see it, for example, in the passage we read together from Zechariah 3. The Lord God revealed there a very impressive vision to the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah was one who prophesied in Jerusalem after Israel had returned, come back from their time in exile in Babylon. The Lord gives Zechariah there a glimpse, a snapshot of heaven. And there, Zechariah sees Joshua the high priest. Zechariah would have known Joshua, who was the high priest during the days of Zerubbabel in the time after the exile. Now, a high priest in Israel, according to the laws of Moses, was one who represented the people to God, but also God to the people. He sacrificed on the altar for the sins of the people, reconciling, restoring the people to the Lord. And through him, the Lord declared the forgiveness of sins. And so now... Zechariah sees Joshua standing before the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord is the very manifestation, earthly somehow, manifestation of God himself. And before him stands Joshua. Actually, we can say that since Joshua the high priest represents God's people, then indeed all of God's people are standing before God. That's what Zechariah sees in the first place. Proof is the clothing Zechariah sees on Joshua. He's dressed in filthy clothing as he stands before the angel. Filthy clothes, those clothes stand for nothing else than the sin and guilt of God's people. And so Joshua, you see, represents the people of God standing before their judge and standing at Joshua's right side, your right, is Satan, which is courtroom language, beloved. We can see it, can't we, in the eye of our mind. God's people are standing at the defense table with Satan, the prosecutor, the accuser, to the right. And they are appearing before the Lord as judge. This is what Zechariah sees. And Zechariah hears the voice of the Lord saying, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord is telling Satan to be quiet. Why? Well, we'll get to that more in the next point. But for now, it's clear that Satan is accusing God's people. He's pointing out to God the filthy clothes of Joshua. Picture it. That beautiful robe of blue cloth, 
the shining ephod with stones that had engraved on them the names of the twelve sons of Israel, the tunic that he wore beneath the blue robe, and that turban of fine linen on his head that had the inscription, according to Exodus 28, holy to the Lord on it. Well, all of this is now filthy. That stood for the filthiness of Israel's sins before the Lord. That's how we stand before God on our own. And Satan, he gets in his shots. Here he acts like the crown prosecutor. Satan points out the filthiness of Joshua's garments. Satan's name doesn't mean accuser for nothing. Day and night, just like he did with Job, he stands before God and he accuses God's people of sin and wickedness. And as it turns out, brothers and sisters, Satan's not the only one who's in on it. Answer 61 of the Catechism says, My conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all God's commandments, have never kept any of them, and am still inclined to all evil. My conscience is agreeing with Satan himself. It accuses me in three ways. First, I have grievously sinned against all God's commandments. It's not that I have just uh, sinned against a commandment here or there, that I slip up every once in a while. No, I've grievously sinned against all the law. Those commandments we know are summarized in the command to love God and the neighbor, and I've certainly fallen short of that. I don't have pure thoughts always of God in my heart, and I have impure thoughts about the neighbor. My conscience's accusation that I sin against all God's commandments cuts to the heart, and it keeps on accusing. I've never kept any of God's commands. I have sinned by actively committing evil, perverting the law of God, but I've also sinned by not doing what I'm supposed to do. <clears throat> I've been negligent, failing to show love to God and the neighbor. So I'm guilty of both the sins of commission and omission. And before I get the chance to say, well, that's not really a faithful description of who I am today. I used to sin all the time, but I'm obedient today. I'm fine. Before we get a chance to say that, our conscience jumps at us again with a third accusation. I am still inclined to all evil. That reminds me that I'm not able in this life to shed my sinful nature, even though by God's grace I do grow in holiness. Three times, Satan and our conscience accuses. Three times, they're correct. But we should be careful, brothers and sisters, to notice something here already, even before we get to the response of the judge. It's simply through the work of God that our consciences accuse us. 
this language of our Lord's Day of self-accusation and displeasure with oneself, well, that cannot be uttered by any unbeliever or even one who pretends to be a believer. With such people, the conscience is silenced or decayed at best. But the conscience of the believer is spot on because it's a conscience that's been seared by the Holy Spirit. Only such a conscience can make such self-accusations. Only such a conscience, you see, has gone through such turmoil and depression and despair even over sin. Only such a conscience admits, I've done what God forbade me to do and I've not done what God required me to do and I cannot fully stop. So for those who worry, is my faith genuine? The words of the Catechism are your answer. This is the language, you see, of faith, of repentance. It's from the heart of one who in faith is sorry for his sins and cries out before the justice seat of God for mercy. We come to our second point where we see that this gift is mine on account of Christ's righteousness. Well, after Satan has finished accusing Joshua and the people of God, what's going to happen? Well, there's another voice. The voice of the heavenly judge in response to all those accusations thrown at us. The Lord responds to Satan's prosecution by saying to him, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. And instead of condemning Joshua and Israel, which they rightfully deserve because of their sins, he sets them free. He commands the angels, remove the guilty, the filthy garments from him. Then he says to Joshua, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure robes. God is saying, you're free, Joshua. Your sins, the sins of my people, they're forgiven. Well, it must have excited Zechariah beyond words to see the filthy garments being taken away. He says, let them put a clean turban on his head. Zechariah doesn't want Joshua's servants, his attendants, to forget that, to give Joshua the turban. Why is that? If you go back to Exodus chapter 28, you would see, indeed, that that turban was to have the inscription on it, holy to the Lord. The inscription says it all, beloved, and Zechariah wants to see that. He wants to see that God's people are most certainly set free and are declared righteous, holy, holy to the Lord. And so Joshua is clothed fully, turban and all. But just how can God do this? How is it possible that God can clothe people who continually sin against him? 
Well, after making clear that all the accusations of my conscience are true, answer 60 includes a small but very marvelous word. The word, yet. Even though I'm guilty as charged, something radical has presented itself. Yet God, without any merit of my own, out of mere grace, imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, holiness of Christ. Godless people are justified. All that Christ has done, God imputes to me, puts on my account as if I'd done it all myself. This is how God yet works in his grace. Though I am a sinner, God writes on my account, obedient and holy and guiltless, just like my beloved son. We don't get to this point by our own deeds, our own attitudes, or whatever. We share in the the sin of our forefather, Adam. The sin of the first Adam is imputed to us, put on our account. We are united with him. And now, but now, in the exact same manner, the obedience of the last Adam, our Savior, is imputed to us. We had no part in that either. But God justifies godless sinners united to Christ by faith. And what God imputes to me, we confess, perfect satisfaction, righteousness, holiness of Christ. Do you see it? These three completely and conclusively cancel out those three accusations that stood against me. My conscience has accused me that I have grievously sinned against all God's commandments. Yet now, over against this stands the perfect satisfaction of Christ. All those sins I have committed, God shifts over to and upon the shoulders of his own son. Christ bore our punishment and perfectly satisfied God's justice. He atoned for our crimes with the sacrifice of his life. Isaiah 53 the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so God, our judge, imputes that to me as if I myself had atoned for all my sins. But that's not all, brothers and sisters. Second accusation we considered was, out, was our outright lack of obedience, that we've never kept any of God's commands. Well, this disobedience however, is canceled out by the obedience of Christ. His righteousness, we confess, his walking in the paths properly in the law of God, that all is imputed to me as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience Christ has accomplished for me. That righteousness was full. That means that the cry our God now hears from us because of Christ is this. I have come to do your will, O God. And still, there's more. 
There's more that we have for the assurance of our righteous status before God. Third accusation from my conscience is that I'm still inclined to all evil. And that's legitimate. We've seen that in light of my unholiness. But thanks be to God, this has all been made good again by the holiness of Christ, which is imputed to me as if I had never sinned or had even been a sinner to begin with. God deals with me as if through my whole life long, I were just as pure, just as holy and perfect as God's only Son. That casts our minds again back to what we read together. The filthy garments could no longer be in God's presence. Get them away. Put festive garments on my people. God has done this to us, imputing to us, yes, clothing us with Christ's righteousness, holiness. It's all, all pure grace. And here we come to one of the central aspects of the Reformation. Again, since it's a Reformation year, Martin Luther, you may know, was overcome for years with this acute anxiety over his sins. He felt God had abandoned him, rejected his prayers, and basically sentenced him to hell. My conscience was restless, he wrote. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. He wrote that. A major turning point, however, occurred for him in 1516, in his years of growing in the knowledge of the scriptures. He was, as a professor, lecturing through the Psalms at the University of Wittenberg, and eventually came to Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, Luther, of course, knew that also Christ spoke these words on the cross. He began to wonder, forsaken, abandoned by God? Why was Christ forsaken? He concluded that the only reason must be that Christ took upon himself all our iniquity. Christ became sin in order to identify with sinners. Luther, in a process, came to see that God's mercy and his grace were at the cross, that the righteousness of faith is salvation for everyone who believes that sacrifice. Well, then we can rejoice that our catechism beautifully captures what the Reformation rediscovered when it uses that little word, yet. We have nothing in ourselves to offer God, and yet, Christ puts on our account his righteousness. Christ was the one who shed his own festive garments, gave them to us, and took our filthy garments upon himself in exchange. The spotless, gleaming, white garments of Christ have become ours. That beautiful, high priestly garment that was restored to the Joshua of the Old Testament, that was done completely and conclusively by Joshua of the New Testament. 
Oh yes, Satan did everything in his power to plunge the Joshua the high priest and all God's people into hell. But Satan's actions, Satan's accusations cannot interfere with the plan of the Lord. The anointed Joshua of the New Testament bore our sin and iniquity and applied to us the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. He gave us royal, gleaming clothes in the presence of God. And for all of this, what does he ask in response? Belief. Trust. I accept this gift with a believing heart. Our final point. God grants the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ to us out of grace. That's, you might say, a lot of the gospel put into a nutshell. But the gospel message, we have to make our own. And the way we make that our own is, of course, then by faith. That's how our Lord's Day concludes. We accept the gift of righteousness with a believing heart, a true faith in Christ and his work. This is what question and answer 61 is addressing for us. Why do you say that you are righteous only by faith? Well, not that I am acceptable to God on account of the worthiness of my faith, for only the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ is my righteousness before God. I can receive this righteousness, make it my own, by faith only. So it's clear that faith is the only means of receiving righteousness. We come to Christ with the open hand of faith in order to receive his righteousness and make it our own. But we need to be crystal clear here on the precise function that our faith plays in all this. The authors of the Catechism were very careful in what they wrote. Roman Catholic Church taught, of course, that our good works do merit something, that the exercising of our faith is vital in earning salvation. Question and answer 61 categorically disagrees. Both question and answer use these three terms, only by faith, by faith only. We are righteous only by faith. That doesn't imply in the least that our faith is deserving or some kind of achievement of ours. No, beloved, it's only by faith that we make Christ our own. Catechism never says because of faith. That would suggest because I am so good and kind to believe in God, he grants me in exchange for my faith righteousness and eternal life. And that is how we tend to think by nature. We don't always want to live by grace alone. We want to bring something to the table. We want to offer something to God. But no, when it comes to God's declaration of us as righteous, 
something that happens at once, once in the believer's life. That declaration is not of ours. It's not, we're, it's not, we're not deserving of it. It's not my faith in the end that makes me worthy before God because I don't have a perfect faith. Faith is a gift, Scripture says. It's given to me, for it's by grace you have been saved through faith, and it's not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, so that no one can boast. Indeed, how can I boast about a gift? I'm just a poor beggar extending out my hand to accept the wonderful gift in Christ. So no, it's not because of faith. Faith is not the ground of, but it's the means to our righteousness. Let me put it this way. When some, what happens when someone falls through the ice? He's about to drown. He has a rope tossed to him by someone else who then pulls him out. Well, does that person who was just saved, does he say, it's the rope that saved me? That rope, of course, is useless without the person to throw it to him and pull him in. It's an instrument. That's faith. Faith in Christ brings righteousness home. That's why we are in no position to boast about our faith, about the rope that was tossed to us. We speak in humility and in gratitude about the one who offered the rope to us in the first place. That's Christ. We are not saved because we believe, because we are such fantastic people. No, what saves us and justifies us is not our faith in itself, but it's simply the fact that that faith is attached to, anchored in, girded by, resting upon Christ. It's through faith that we are connected to his greatness, his satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness. But the question, of course, remains, what do we do with this faith? There are two things the Catechism says you have to do with it. First, receive your righteousness. Receive the great gift by faith, the channel along which the gifts of God flow to us. The Holy Spirit is the one who makes us able, ready, eager to receive it. But it doesn't stop there. We also have the duty to make it our own. And your mind can wander in all sorts of directions here. There's all sorts of places we could talk, uh, consider together. But at the very least, making it your own involves a life of unending praise and thanksgiving. Faith without deeds is absolutely useless, the Apostle James writes. We are called to rejoice in the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, which is ours. That person who fell into the ice and was rescued, it would be completely ridiculous if he said, thanks so much that I could let you save me. No, he's probably speechless because there are no words to describe thankfulness for a rescue from death 
Well, Jesus Christ has held out his hand to rescue us. All we can do is grab a hold of it and hold on for life. Christ is not obligated to say to us, good for you, that you grabbed a hold of my hand. No. The reaction to our rescue has to come from us. And that shows itself in our praise and adoration of Christ, our righteousness before God. That's all we can do to show our thankfulness, unending praise in word and in deed. And so we may cry out to the Lord to guard us from pride, spiritual pride. Our faith is just not worthy of praise or adoration. Rather, live today for your righteous Savior who gave himself up for you, who took upon himself your filthy rags and who clothed you with the splendor of his majesty. Grab a hold of him and hold on for dear life with the empty hands of faith given to you by him. There is freedom. There is righteousness into which one may enter only by faith. And that, faith, that righteousness leads to obedience and to everlasting life. What does it help you? Now that you believe the most important, the most splendid news in heaven and on earth, in Christ, I am righteous before my holy judge. That is worthy of headlines. That's a song made for believers to sing for eternity. What a gift. What a savior. Enjoy him and his righteousness by faith. Amen.